he's getting a lot more teeth too, so just find piles of drool kind of all over the house in different places. But he, he pulls himself over that, and then he'll maybe crawl out, and he'll crawl over. We have this cupboard that we keep Gatorade in. He likes to crawl inside it for some reason, and he'll close himself inside there and then play peekaboo with you when you open the door. He'll crawl over my desk, and he loves the computer, which is not a good thing. <laughs> There's lots of cables and buttons and things that he can push, but he, he likes it. Um, I think you get the picture. He's pretty much nonstop. He just crawls, 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 pulls himself up, crawls, crawls, crawls. He's just all over the place. So it's a little harder to keep the eyes on. I, I'm, I feel for you that have kid, people that have more than one kid because then they're outnumbering you. And you can't watch them all the time because they're always doing something different. So I can see it just getting more challenging. The other thing he really likes doing, um, maybe I like doing, I like playing with Caleb's blocks. How many of you like building things? Well, I like to build things. Caleb likes to destroy them. <laughs> I'll uh, build a little tower before it even gets three or four high. He's, he just knocks it down. So I thought I'd outsmart him the other day. I, I built one tower, and then I ran across the living room, and I started to build another one as he was heading towards that one. And he tore toward the first one and knocked it over. And then before I could even get the second one built, he was there and knocked it over. And I was like, man, this kid's smart. I can't even build a cool little tower anywhere. So I kept doing it, and I was like, I'm going to test this kid. I'm going to see how long he'll keep doing this. I think if I'd have kept going, he'd still be doing it right now. <laughs> back and forth and back and forth. Gets his exercise that way, I guess, and he just likes destroying things, but it's cute. But I think God has me here this morning to share something that I think is a, a lot more productive and a lot more important for us, and that's Acts chapter 7. Um, we're, we're just going to jump in and look at it this morning. It's a little long. It's 60 verses long, so it's one of the longer ones we've done here. But it's broken into pretty much two major sections. So the first 53 verses... Stephen goes through and he's sharing his defense and he shows the history of God's people, where God had them and the response that they had to God in those different situations. And then the last seven verses are about the crowd's reaction to what Stephen was saying and eventually his stoning and his death. So we're going to look at a couple lessons that we can learn from the history and we're going to talk about the persecution and look at some things that God, I think, wants us to understand. He wants us to understand more about Him and He wants us to understand about persecution itself. But before we jump in, let's pray. And just ask God to bless our time here this morning. Well, God, we, we thank you for this morning. God, we praise you just for the, the chance that we have to sit here together in a room this morning. God, we're, we're not persecuted here. God, we, we don't have people trying to kill us because we're meeting together to worship you, to talk about you, God, to fellowship together. God, we thank you for that. God, we thank you that you just allow us to do this here. God, we just really pray that this morning you would help us to understand you better. Maybe we're not persecuted heavily every day. Maybe we're not in fear for our lives, but God, there are a lot of things that you want us to learn about this persecution. Those things could be realities for us in the years to come. God, we just really pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. God, you would help us to understand you more this morning. God, we would understand your heart. We would understand how much you love us. God, we would understand what you call us to when we're persecuted. God, help us this morning just to trust you and open our eyes. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so like I said, we're going to jump into Acts chapter 7, so you all have Bibles on your seats. If you don't have a Bible, turn around and look, they're all over, somebody can hand you one. But we're going to turn to page 1083, and we're going to read Acts 7 together. We're just going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to jump back in and look at some things, some lessons we can learn through it. So again, that's page 1083, and we're going to read Acts 7. So it says, Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? To this he replied, he talking about Stephen. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. 
The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, came, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him in and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, 
and with our fathers. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is said in the, what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Raphon, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacles of testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations. God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And then the, the first verse, part of 8 there, says and Saul was there giving his approval to his death. So the first thing I think about reading this section of Scripture is what an amazing man of God Stephen was. And I wonder what my reaction would have been. I think we all do that. I think when we see someone persecuted, we wonder, what would I do? What would I have done in that same situation? We ask ourselves, what would I do? What would, what would, my, what would my just gut reaction be to that situation? What if in the future we have to stand up to something like that? Something that, like the persecution that Stephen had to go through. We ask ourselves, why have the guts? Why have the courage? Why have the strength? to make the same choice that Stephen did? Those are good questions to ask yourself and to think about. We can learn things that Stephen knew, and we can grow in our faith just by taking a look at some of the history that he shared there as he was, as he was defending himself in front of the angry crowds. Last week, Brad shared with all of us that Stephen was actually one of the first deacons in the church there, the early church. He was a man put in charge of the administration of the church. His first job was to just make sure that the widows were getting their food along with a myriad of other little duties, just administrative duties. But not everybody was fond of him. We see that too. Brad shared that some men argued with Stephen, but that they couldn't stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. Because they, and because of that, they stirred up the people against him. They, they set up false witnesses against him. They had people come against him and say false things, things that were not true, things that were lies. 
And they drug him before the Sanhedrin to stand up on trial for his blasphemy against Moses and against God. But at the beginning here at chapter 7, we see Stephen share his defense. And he starts just by laying out that, that brief review of Jewish history. He goes from Abraham all the way up into the David building the, the, or Solomon building the temple there for him. Now remember who his audience was here. Remember who he was talking to, who these crowds were, who the, the people in the Sanhedrin, the people that were around him were. They were men who had intensely studied the scriptures. They'd studied them from when they were just children. They knew them. They had them memorized. They knew it forward and backward. Anyway, the first thing that we notice here is that the people that Stephen seemed to focus on in his history, there's a couple people that he focuses on, and there's a lot of people in the Old Testament. If you've read the Old Testament, it's a big book. There's a lot that goes on. There's a lot of kings. There's a lot of different things that happen in the Old Testament. There's two people that he focused on, and I think they have significance. He talks about Joseph, and he talks about Moses. Two men who were raised up by God, they were rejected by Israel, and then they were exalted as deliverers and as saviors to the people. It said here in his brief history that Joseph was rejected and sold as a slave into Egypt. But God did awesome things in his life. Joseph went from slave there, from being a slave, to being ruler over Egypt, over all of Egypt, and even the Pharaoh's palace. God used him to deliver Israel out of the famine that they were in when Joseph sent for his family and had them move down to Egypt, where he was able to provide for them and take care of them and feed them. Moses, on the other hand, was born and raised by Pharaoh's daughter and educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. It says that when he was 40 years old, he, he went out and he went to be part of his people and see what the Israelites were all about. And when he saw one of the Israelites being attacked and being beaten, he killed it, the Egyptian that was doing it. And he probably thought right then, hey, I've saved these people, they're going to see it. They're going to see that I'm here to help them and to save them. But they didn't. Instead of praising him and thanking him, he was rejected. And so he fled. He fled to Midian and spent 40 years there, learning how to survive in the desert. Before God sent him back to Egypt to to be the Israelites' ruler and to be their deliverer there, out of Egypt. Not only was Moses then rejected once by the people... But after he did all this, he led them out. Tons of miracles. Led them through walls of water, through the Red Sea. Everything. They rejected him again when they built idols with their own hands and bowed down to them and worshipped them and thought that he was a fool. Stephen was showing the Jewish people that they had at least, on two previous occasions, rejected saviors that God had raised up to deliver them. I want to read you something. It's a little kind of um, thought that on this thought of the whole Old Testament that was written in the Daily Notes of Scripture Union in 1969. So it's a little old, but I think it it rings true here. It It says, History repeats itself. In every generation, we can find the same pattern. People are the same. When confronted with God's message, they do not understand. When urged to live at peace, they refuse to listen. When given a God sent deliverer, they reject Him. When rescued from an evil situation, they prefer useless idols to the merciful God. Such is human nature. Rebellious, ungrateful, foolish. God, on the other hand, is the same. The God who spoke to Moses was the same God who had spoken to his ancestors. This God hears when people are troubled. He comes to deliver. He leads his people from death to life. He surrenders to their own desires those who willfully reject him. Such is our great God. Merciful, powerful, holy. He is always the same whatever happens. For Stephen's hearers, it was a warning not to trifle with God. It is also an assurance that every promise of God stands firm 
forever. How true is that paragraph? Over and over in the Old Testament, the people just reject God. They rebel against Him. He tries to get them to repent and turn back. And what do they do? They just keep rejecting Him. And so He has to be just with them. And He has to punish them for their unrighteousness. We see it in the story of Noah and the ark, when all the people just kept turning away from God. And He said, you need to turn back, you need to turn back. And then He wiped them all out. He killed all of them besides Noah and the people, his family on the ark. We see it when the Israelites later on reject God again when they're in Jerusalem. And... He has them taken into exile in Babylon, and a lot of them are killed. But I think Stephen used the stories of Joseph and Moses to even make a stronger statement. Do those two men remind you of anyone else, and their situations remind you of anyone else? Maybe someone who came into the world as a savior, someone who came into the world as a deliverer, someone who was mocked and ridiculed by God's people. He was beaten, he was whipped, and eventually crucified on a cross. Yes, I think Stephen was using these men as an analogy show that the exact same thing was done by these people to Jesus Christ. If we look again at verses 51 through 53, Stephen calls the people out pretty strongly, and he says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always reject the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, being Jesus Christ. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen wasn't shy about pointing that point out to the people. He was pretty strong. He was right in their face with it. Stephen had to have known that saying these statements and being bold, that his life was at stake. He could have probably just shared a compromising, toothless little speech, something that didn't have a whole lot of gumption to it, but he would rather die than betray his Lord and Savior. Men and women, we need to admire Stephen's courage here. She might be saying, hey, you know, that's, that's great and all, but how does this apply to me? What, I, what can I learn from this that will make me a stronger Christian and a better follower of Christ? And I think there's two things that we can learn. The first thing that I think we can learn, and it's pretty obvious, is that our flesh apart from Christ is rebellious. On our own strength, we're going to keep going in this vicious cycle that we see in the Old Testament. Without Christ, we will be driven to things that we don't even imagine possible. Possibly even killing another human being, just like these men did here in the old, er, in, uh, against Stephen here. The men who stoned Stephen weren't necessarily evil men. Nobody probably would have seen them the day before and, been, and thought they were evil men. They would have thought, hey, these are God-fearing guys who are reading God's Word and trying to obey Him. And they probably weren't necessarily bad men even the day after. People probably saw him again and said, hey, that's, that's a nice guy. But they were religious men. They were religious men who followed God's commandments. So what drove them to murder Stephen? What was the thing that drove them to stoning Stephen to death? It was their selfishness and their greed. They didn't like someone pointing out the things in their life that were obviously sin and that were shortcomings in their own lives. They didn't like it. They thought they were perfect. They thought that nothing should come against them. And so they killed Stephen. They were unbelievers focused on themselves. And they forgot the big picture. You're probably saying to yourself, I could never get that angry. I could never get so angry that I would want to kill someone. But without Christ, the flesh is capable. The flesh is capable of doing that. Even if you think down to your core, there's no possible way. Without Christ, your flesh could do it. And we see it over and over and over throughout the history of our world. Stephen was just one of the first of many Christians that have been persecuted and killed for their beliefs. 
In fact, after he was killed, we read there at the, the end that Saul was standing right there. And we're going to learn about him here in the next couple of weeks. But he, let it, he started the persecution against the church that's been going up until this day for any of those who profess their, their belief in Christ as the Messiah. In fact, I want to share with you just a, a few of the ways that some of the other Christians, in the early, the early Christians, were persecuted. Some of the other Christians, like James the Great, he was the elder brother of John the Apostle. He was beheaded in 44 AD. Philip, Philip who served in Upper Asia, was scourged in Phrygia, thrown into prison and later crucified in AD 54. Matthew, the tax collector, served the Lord in Parthia and Ethiopia, where he was slain with a halberd, which is essentially a shafted weapon with an axe-like cutting blade and a speared end in the city of Nadaba, A.D. 60. James the Less, the brother of the Lord, served the church in Jerusalem and wrote the book of James. He suffered martyrdom at the age of 94 by being beaten and stoned by the Jews. Matthias, the man who was chosen to replace Judas as an apostle, was stoned at Jerusalem and then beheaded. Andrew, the brother of Peter, preached the gospel to many Asiatic nations and was crucified on a cross at Edessa. The ends of his cross were fixed transversely in the ground, thus the derivation of the term St. Andrew's cross. Mark was converted to Christianity by Peter and served as a manusus. Essentially, he wrote for Peter. He was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria. Peter the Apostle was sought by Nero to be put to death. Jerome wrote that Peter was crucified with his head down and his feet up because he thought himself unworthy to be crucified in the same form as, as and manner as the Lord. Paul was really persecuted several times. He was scourged, stoned, and finally Nero had him beheaded by a sword. Jude, the brother of James, commonly called Thaddeus, was crucified at Edessa in A.D. 72. Bartholomew preached in several countries and translated the Gospel of Matthew into the language of India. He was cruelly beaten and then crucified by impatient idolaters. Thomas, doubting Thomas, preached the Gospel in Parthia in India. He excited the rage of the pagan priest and was martyred by being thrust through with a spear. Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, traveled with Paul through various countries and was supposed to have been hanged on an olive tree by the idolatrous priests of Greece. Simon the Zealot preached the gospel in Mauritania, Africa, and even Britain where he was crucified in A.D. 74. John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, was sent from Ephesus to Rome where he was put into a cauldron of boiling oil. He escaped by a miracle without injury but was then banished to the Isle of Patmos and there he wrote the book of Revelations. Nerva, Domitian's successor, said he was the only apostle who escaped a violent death. So a lot of people died. That's just early church. That's not even the year 100 yet. And we're in year 2000. 2009. But 2000 years later. These men were persecuted because of their belief in Jesus Christ. Any one of them could have turned away at any moment and denied Christ and probably lived. But because Christ was living in them, they were able to remain true to Christ. Thousands of Christians, not too long after we read this here in the Bible, were killed in the Roman Empire. The Romans simply just didn't like anyone following a higher being than Caesar. They were unbelievers whose flesh was selfish and rebellious towards God. So they persecuted and killed thousands of believers. All the believers had to do to live, essentially, all they were asking the believers to do was take a handful of incense and throw it in a fire. By doing that, they were saying, I, I'm under Caesar. I believe Caesar to be God. I bet you even at the time the Romans didn't believe that. They knew Caesar wasn't a god, but that's what they called people to do. And all, all those Christians would have had to do is just, it was meaningless, but they would have had to pick up that incense, throw it in there, and they could have lived. But they didn't. They chose loyalty to God and death instead. 
So we see that first thing, the lesson we learn is that the flesh is rebellious. It causes all these things to happen without God. The second thing we can learn is that only through God's love can we prevail against this type of persecution. Let's take a look again there at the end of, of chapter 7. If we look at 54 on. It says, When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. We learn, I think, in those statements there, you can see something about Stephen's life. You can see that he really understood God's love for him. It says that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and that he saw heaven open before him. He didn't turn in fear. He didn't run. He didn't try and escape. He trusted in God's love for him. He even prayed there at the end, which is pretty amazing to me, that God would not hold the sin of the men stoning him to death against them. That's very similar to the same thing that Christ died when he was on the cross. He said, don't hold their sin against them. They don't know what they're doing. Both Stephen and Christ gave themselves fully to God and rested in God's love for them. The only way that we're going to be able to stand up against persecution that is going to be against us in our lives is if we understand God's love for us. We sang that song earlier about how deep and how wide is God's love for us. If we, we need to understand that. We need to have a deep down understanding in our hearts of how much God loves us, how much He desires to protect us, how much He desires to give us a future and a hope, and how much He's just going to watch over us. If we don't understand that, we're going to be in trouble. Let's turn together. I want to, we're going to look at something, that, a description of Jesus telling, telling us what, it's going to be, what this life's going to be like. It's in John 15. It's page 1069. The section of this title is The World Hates the Disciples. And it's just Jesus laying out what the world is going to look like to you and I, to the disciples of Christ. So that if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father... He will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus tells us exactly how the world feels about us. And it's true to this day. He says that we're going to be persecuted. He says that they're going to hate us just because we love God. But that he calls us to persevere. And there in that last line, he calls us to testify about him, no matter what happens to us. Let's look at another time that he talks about it in Matthew 10. If you flip over to Matthew 10, it's page 964. 
We're going to look at verse 17. We're going to look at a few verses here. But again, Jesus, he's, he's talking about sending out the twelve. He's getting ready to send out the twelve disciples there, the twelve apostles to go out and speak his word for him. And he says this, he says, Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your, spot, of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. So Jesus says we're going to be flogged. He says we're going to be beaten. He said we're going to be arrested and thrown in jail. And again, we've seen that throughout history. We see that today in our world. That, he says there that brothers will betray each other. He says that fathers will betray their children and have their children killed. He says children will turn around and have their parents killed because of belief in Him. We're going to be persecuted, but I think what's really great about both these statements is that God says not to worry about it. I really like that statement there in, in 29. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. We're more loved and more precious than sparrows, that's for sure. So you might be saying to yourself, bring on the persecution. I want some of this in my life right now. It doesn't seem that bad. In fact, you might have been persecuted already. I don't know about you students at school or if you've ever even just shared your faith. Have you ever shared the gospel with them or invited them to come here and join us on Sunday morning and they snubbed you, made fun of you in front of their friends. They say, oh, that crazy Jeff, he's just my crazy Christian friend. I bet you many of you have had that happen to you, where people look down at you or look weird at you because you shared your faith with them, you shared Christ with them. Maybe you were on campus this past fall when Tom Short was there, uh, preaching on campus, and the fist fight almost broke out because of the truth that Tom was sharing. Maybe this last fall, when the elections were around, you heard about a, a group of Christians there in San Francisco praying on a street corner in California about the Proposition 8. That Proposition 8 was... Uh, the proposition that was to make same-sex marriages legal. And a group of homosexuals attacked that group of Christians praying. People are being persecuted all over the world for their Christian beliefs. Just because we're not here, necessarily, or being persecuted heavily, it's happening around the world. I read a couple stories this week on a, on a Christian persecution website. There's a lot of them out there if you're ever just looking and you're, you're kind of interested in what's going on around the world and um, different things that are happening. I thought I'd share these couple with you. Maybe it would bring this subject a little, little closer to home for you. 
This first one, it's, it's talking about Iraq. It was written just a couple days ago, three or four days ago. It says, Mosul, Mosul, fresh antichrist violence, murder and torture. The lifeless body of a young Christian was found yesterday by the army in Mosul, northern Iraq. The abandoned body uncovered in a street in the east of the city was that of 36-year-old Shorak Bagrad. Asia news sources in Mosul, a city with one and a half million inhabitants north of Baghdad, confirmed that it was an execution-style killing. Multiple gunshot wounds to the head. His body was later discarded in Al-Bakar district, where it was found by police and brought to the morgue for an autopsy. Shurk Bagrad was an, a Christian from the Armenian church and his brother works in Mosul University. The same sources refer that a Christian was also kidnapped New Year's Eve in Mosul. The man whose name we choose not to public, publish for security reasons was kidnapped and held hostage for four days. He was only freed after the payment of $50,000 ransom. During his detention, he was tortured over and over again. If we hadn't paid the ransom, the source confirms, they would certainly have killed him. There are criminal gangs who kidnap for money. The want, they want the Christian's money. Despite government claims and reports proclaiming that security standards have improved, Mosul remains a volcano ready to explode at any moment. The situation for Christians there is still tragic. In October alone, 16 faithful were killed and 2,000 families forced to flee. Groups linked to Al-Qaeda are operative in the area targeting Christians and killing sprees, destroying their homes and property, threatening them with letters, abductions, and attacks. A hate campaign perfectly constructed to drive them from the land of their birth. In 2007, Paulo Farge Rao, the Chaldean bishop of the diocese, was killed. His body found on March 13th in an abandoned land outside the city limits. During the attack that led to his kidnap, the three men who were with him for his safety were killed. In 2007, the death toll of Mosul's Christian community was 13. Among them was Ragid Ghani massacred on June 3rd and another two priests. Another article that kind of struck me was written Friday, January 9th. The title of it says, Hamas reinstates crucifixions of Christians. While the world focused on Hamas militants launching rockets from Gaza at southern Israel, the terrorist organization also voted quietly to implement Islamic laws in the Gaza Strip, including crucifixion of Christians, according to reports in the Arabic press. The traditional Muslim criminal code, known as Sharia law, includes penalties such as amputation of limbs for stealing and the death penalty, including crucifixion for actions Hamas deems detrimental to Palestinian interests, including collaborating with Israel. The new law was reported on Al Arabiya website and in the London-based Saudi-owned newspaper, which wrote that the implementation of Sharia law has brought criticism and concern from human rights organizations in the Gaza Strip. But the media scarcely took notice when the decision was reported during the Christian holidays as fighting between Hamas and Israel escalated in late December. Hamas's endorsement of nailing enemies of Islam to crosses came at the same time it renewed its jihad. Here, too, Hamas wanted to make sure that Christians didn't feel neglected as its fighters launched missiles, missiles at Jewish daycare centers and schools. Christians are a minority in Gaza, numbering fewer than 2,000 residents among 1.6 million in the Strip. After Hamas came to power, the Islamic group began forcing, enforcing Sharia law more strictly, though not officially. Christians were the first to feel the squeeze. Some Christian men felt compared to, compelled to grow beards and women donned headscarves to downplay their identities as non-Muslims. Sharia law is implemented fully in some nations, including Iran and Saudi Arabia. When Palestinian voters elected Hamas in 2006, organization spokesmen declared the Quran is our constitution, Muhammad is our prophet, jihad is our path, and dying as martyrs for the sake of Allah is our biggest wish. So there's some pretty crazy things going on in our world today. We go, hey, I don't feel it. I don't feel persecuted. 
What if that changes in our lifetime? What if those things come here? What if in America we have to have underground churches like they do in China every day? We can't just meet together in a room like this and seek God and pray for God. It's real. It's happening in our world. We've seen it on a very, very, very minor scale. But I want to leave you with a couple questions to think on when it comes to you being persecuted and possibly even killed for your Christian beliefs. You need to have these answers when you, if you're ever persecuted. The first question is this. Is your faith in God strong enough to stand up against this world's persecution? Does your faith in God run deep enough? Do you believe the promises in His Word? Do you believe it like Stephen did? Do you have a faith deep enough that if you are ever put in a position that people tell you to renounce your belief in Jesus, you will, you will be able to stand up against it and die, if that's what it comes down to? Again, is your faith in God strong enough to stand up against this world's persecution? And the second question, is your understanding of God's love for you great enough to endure this world's persecution. I think sometimes we have a hard enough time when someone makes fun of us for sharing our faith. We'll, we'll turn away. We won't, we will, we'll act like we're not a Christian because we don't want to look like a fool. If we're in that place, if we're having a hard time with that, what's it going to be like when you're standing there going to die? Are you going to stay true to God? Are you going to trust Him? Do you understand His love? Do you understand how much God loves you? Do you understand how deep it is? He cares about us so much, men and women. He cares about us. We need to be men and women just like Stephen, who are bold, who are courageous, no matter what the cause may be, no matter what the cost may be. I think we need to grow in that. I, I'm with you. I have a hard enough time sharing at work sometimes because I'm afraid they're going to think I'm a, I'm a freak. We shouldn't be afraid of that. That's minor. Look at what's going on in our world today. Imagine if you were in, in the Gaza Strip and you were going to be crucified because you read your Bible. Would you still do it? Would you read your Bible? Would you be like Daniel? We talked about, I shared on a couple weeks ago, where he continued to pray even though he knew he was going to be thrown into the lion's den. He got down on his knees and he prayed because he knew God was good and he believed his promises. We need to believe him too. We need to work on that. We need to have personal time in the Word. We need to be getting these things on our own. We can't just show up on Sunday mornings and expect that we're going to hear something and that's going to strengthen our faith. We need that faith. We need to have a personal relationship. We need to be seeking God in prayer. We need to be reading His Word. We need to be believing that every single word of it is true. Let's pray. Well, God, we, we do thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for the family You've given us here. God, I pray that you would help each one of us understand your love more. God, help us to understand, just like that song earlier, how deep and how wide, how great is your love for us, God. God, you love us. God, you want to protect us. You want us to be safe. God, we thank you that here in America we, we aren't persecuted very much for our beliefs. God, we, we may have a few people think we're silly or think we're radicals or or think we're a freak. But God, we, we know that we're not going to die for our faith. God, we thank you for that. I, I pray that we would never have to be persecuted to that extent. God, I pray that you would um, just use us in our, our culture. God, that you would change it here in America. God, that you would change it around the world. God, use us around the world to show your love. 
God, that more people would understand it, that more people would turn from their flesh, God, from their rebelliousness that's just inherent with their flesh. God, I pray that you would help each one of us here. God, I, I pray if we don't know you, if there's anyone here in this room that doesn't know you, God, I pray you just make yourself evident to them. God, they would see how much you love them, that you know the numbers of hairs on their heads. God, you know every little detail about them. God, I pray that you would help us understand. God, help us to be men and women that will stand up and testify for you. God, it's a, it's a very minor thing here, again, just here in the U.S., to be able to share our faith. And if we're persecuted for it, God, I say all the more. God, help us to have that attitude. Help us not be afraid of, of looking silly in front of other people. But God, help us to just be bold for you. Help us to be courageous for you. Help us to just get out there and, and share what you've called us to. God, we know our mission here is it's, it's not to make money and to have high standing. God, it's to share about you every day of our lives. God, help us to understand that just deeper and deeper every day. God, strengthen us in our relationship with you. God, help us to be reading your word. Help us to be seeking you in prayer. Help us to be getting out and sharing our faith. God, we need strength from you to do that. God, without you, it's impossible. God, help us remember to just seek you and to pull you in. God, without your strength, we're, we're in trouble. God, we would never be able to stand up to this kind of persecution in our world without your strength and without your love. And God, we're thankful that you, you give it to us and that you love us and care about us. God, again, we just thank you for this morning. Thank you for this truth from Acts 7. God, we just thank you for Stephen's life. God, and just the example he is to us. God, help us to mirror that. Help us to mirror Stephen's life. God, we just thank you for this morning and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, that's this morning, so thanks again. Um, Greg.